You know, when we hear the stories of real heroes, we realize how far we are from what we would all like to be. I had the opportunity to meet many Medal of Honor recipients through Nick Bacon. Every one of them was a humble man. They did not think of themselves as being anything special. Uh, every one of them I ever had the opportunity to speak to said, I do not, do not wear this medal for myself, nor for my actions. I wear it for those who could not come home. Uh, we need to be humbled in the presence of these men. And as Mike read last night and this morning, these citations, I'd just like to ask all the men that are here this morning who have served in our military, would you please stand up so that we can recognize you? Men and women, sorry. Thank you all. Yeah, and we don't take anything away from the ladies because some of them are stone cold killers like Jael. And uh, we thank God for that as well. Um, <clears throat> I'm about three classes behind where I'm supposed to be this morning. We're thundering through 2 Peter, but we need to just slow down long enough, and I'm going to just quickly review what we covered last night as far as the steps of spiritual growth, and then hopefully we'll be able to start moving a little more rapidly uh, through our notes. So if you would join me in a word of prayer, let's ask God's blessing. I am helpless up here to do anything of any value unless God the Holy Spirit gives me the utterance that God wants me to speak. So join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as we come before the throne of your grace and having just heard this uh, story, this uh, tremendous citation of a Medal of Honor recipient, and Father, how often it is that there are those who are scorned, those who are despised, uh, those who are considered less than nothing, uh, as Nick Bacon always used to say to me, there's a very fine line between the Medal of Honor and a court-martial. And that's so very true because they have to be people who are willing to think outside the box and people who are willing to cross lines that they're told not to cross. I pray, Father, this morning that you will give us that Christian warrior mentality that the Apostle Paul speaks of, not one of arrogance, uh, not one of self-promotion, but one of realizing that we are here for the purpose of humble service and self-sacrifice. Help us to emulate, imitate, and reflect the attitude of our Lord and Savior, who though he existed eternally in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to cling to, but he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He came into this world in the form of a man. And even after having taken such a great step from the throne in heaven to this world of sin, sorrow, and suffering, he humbled himself even further, becoming obedient to death, even the death of the worst criminal on a cross. Yet, Father, we owe not only everything that we have in life, but we owe eternal life itself to his willingness to, to come to us as a servant and to sacrifice himself. So help us, Father, this morning as we open your word. May God the Holy Spirit uh, imbue us with the spirit of Christ and instill in us his character 
and his way of life that we might serve in the time in which we find ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. just want to follow up very quickly and briefly on something that Mike said. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. I believe it was recorded by Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, during the Revolutionary War period. Uh, the British troops had come into Boston and they were going to attack uh, a group of uh, colonists. And as they were marching, uh, slowly and with the band and, and all the pomp and circumstance as they were marking, marching through the streets. There's an old man about 80 years old that took a stand in the middle of the road and as they approached him with a military bearing and with a voice that was full of command at the top of his lungs he said, halt! And so great was his personal presence and so great was the command in his voice that all of those troops came to a stop. It was as if a true commander had just stood up in front of them. The man was dressed in rags. He was obviously a very poor man, but he became known as the great champion. And it actually started a legend. If you've read any of the books like The Fourth Turning, you'll know that there's the idea that every 80 years, a nation goes through a time of tremendous crisis, and we're in one of those 80-year periods right now. But the legend that developed from this great champion was that every 80 years, when the nation goes into decline and the nation is in great peril, there will rise up a great champion. And my prayer is often that God will raise up a multitude of great champions that will take their stand in the time in which we live and be a beacon and a guiding light for the younger men and the younger women that are coming up. So there's a challenge for each and every one of us. But the only way we can do that is if we continue to grow in grace. And so a very quick review of the steps of spiritual growth that we studied in verses five through nine of the first chapter, because sometimes we read these words and we don't really define them or understand what they mean. So add to your faith virtue. Virtue is the power of God. We saw that from verse three. And the only way that you and I can have the power of God is through the filling of the Holy Spirit. People often ask me, how can I be filled with the Spirit? The answer is very simply, simple. Empty yourself of yourself. Lay yourself aside and humble yourself and depend on him to be your guide and to be your strength. From virtue, we go to knowledge, which is Bible study. We get into the word. That's why this church is here. That's why novice has dedicated himself to the study and the teaching of the word. And as we work our way through the scripture, we continue to learn and we never stop being a student. The whole idea of discipleship is learning, being a student. From knowledge, we move to self-control. That's the day-by-day -day application of what I'm learning. We will never learn everything that is contained in a class and we'll never apply everything that we've learned because there's always a certain lag time between what we hear, what we learn, and what we are able to implement. But as we continue to consciously apply the things that we're learning to our life, we're going to see daily application. And then from self-control, we move to perseverance, which is very simply never quit. There are going to be obstacles. There are going to be pitfalls. 
There are going to be distractions. There are going to be things that are going to hinder you from moving on in your spiritual life. There are going to be heartaches that come into your life. It could be the breakup of a family. It could be the turning of your kids against you. It could be friends betraying you. It could be any of those things. And you go through the weight and the burden and the hurt and the pain of all of those things, and you just keep pressing on. Perseverance leads us to godliness, and this is simply Christ-likeness. How in the world can we possibly be like Christ? And the answer is one day at a time, one moment at a time, and one step at a time. The Apostle Paul put it this way, be imitators of me as I am of Jesus Christ. Imitate Christ as you see him revealed in the scripture, as you see his characteristics, as you see his acts, as you see the things that he did, as you see the love that he showed the people. Imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And then godliness, of course, leads us to brotherly love because until we start conforming to the character of Christ, we can't really love those around us. You know, we, we are hampered as human beings by tending to look on the outside. Scripture says man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we need to pray that God will give us the vision to stop looking at people and judging people based on how they look on the outside, based on their physical appearance, based on their accomplishments, based on their social status, based on their circle of friends, whatever. Those are not the real issues of those who are our fellow believers. The real issue is that we have one God and Father. We have one Lord and Savior. We have one book, though we will often disagree about interpretations of passages. But when someone can hold up the Bible and say, this I believe, this is what I stand for, we can have a special love for those people who are fellow believers. And that'll lead us to the ultimate, which is love and that is, of course, the love of God for all members of the human race. If you, if you find it, or if we find it difficult to love our fellow believers, how much more difficult is it to love those who are without Christ? Yet there is a tricky little problem, and that is sometimes we find those who are without Christ easier to love than those who are fellow believers, don't we? Because sometimes, let's face it, families tend to be dysfunctional. Is there anyone here that didn't grow up in a dysfunctional family? I think every family is dysfunctional to some degree. Mine certainly was. And so we fight among ourselves. But you know, even as a kid growing up with two older brothers, and they used to beat up on me mercifully when I was young, we would fight among ourselves, but on the schoolyard, you better not mess with one of the brothers or the other brothers would pile in. So yeah, as Christians, we fight among ourselves and we have different views and different interpretations. And there are areas where we'll question each other or disagree with one another. But the thing is, here is the ultimate touchstone. Do you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior? Amen. And that is the foundation on which we love our fellow believers. So we need to grow up in our faith, and that's Peter's challenge to us that we've covered up to this point. I wanna pick up in our key verses, verse 10 and 11, which really give us the outline for the book. Therefore, brethren, therefore being the need to grow up, therefore be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. We've talked about our calling, our calling is first to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Second, our calling is to grow in grace and truth. 
And third, our calling is to enter into the service that God has called us to. That is our calling. If you do these things, you will never stumble. In other words, if you keep on doing these things, if you're focused on this, committed to this, dedicated to this, it's going to keep you from stumbling. You know, if you have a goal out there in front of you and you're moving toward that goal, distractions on either side are not going to lead you astray because you're going to keep focusing on that goal. Verse 11 says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that basically has to do with our last chapter, uh, but it's the idea of eternal reward, laying up for yourself treasure in heaven. God honors faithfulness. However weak, however frail, however stumbling, we may try to apply his word. He honors the effort. He honors the slightest faith. He will never disregard the slightest service. Even the ability to overcome maybe obstacles or difficulties among ourselves to show grace, to show mercy, to show kindness, to show the love of God to one another. God honors those things. And therefore, as we day by day give ourselves, devote ourselves to serving the Lord in whatever way we can, whether it's through our prayer life, praying for others. And I would encourage you, if you have someone that sticks in your craw, someone that just really gets your goat, however you want to use the terminology, could I just encourage you, use that to pray for them. Make that person an object of your prayer life. And you pray for God, not only to work in that person's life, but to work in your life to make you more humble and more willing to serve those that you may be opposed to for whatever reason. So an entrance will be supplied abundantly. And as I said last night, the word supplied is the same word that we find translated add in verse five. One of my bugaboos, if you will, or uh, things that really irritates me is that translators should translate consistently. And because they don't translate consistently, we fail to make connections in Scripture. My Bibles, I destroy my Bibles because they've got lines going from here to there. And this, by the way, is a new Bible. My old Bible, if I showed it to you, you wouldn't even be able to see the page. There are lines everywhere. And the reason is, as I search it out, I find out, hey, this word's the same as this word. And they're in two different sections of the passage, and therefore, I need to understand what they mean and how they link together, and so on and so forth. So add to your faith and supply uh, to you abundantly are the same idea, and here's what it comes down to. Whatever you add to your life of the Word of God here in time, God is going to add to you a reward in eternity. However weak, however frail, however small. Today we are living for then. Today we are laying up for then. You know, we have a lot of information today about preppers. Well, how about let's prep for eternity? Let's start laying up for eternity. Let's make sure that we don't end up entering into eternity in rags. Let's enter in with honor because whatever we do here and now is not for our recognition in eternity. It's for the recognition and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ as our thank offering to him for what he has done for us. 
So we're going to move now into the calling of the believer. We looked at the inward call in verses 1 through 4, and then we looked at the outward call in verses 5 through 9. That's what we've just been talking about. Now we look at the upward call. And I just want to point out three things about this upward call, and I'll try to go through them fairly quickly. Number one, it is a calling with a promise. It's a calling with a promise. It has a negative and a positive, and I've just covered those in verses 10 and 11. You will not fall, but you will enter eternity richly. That's the promise. If you and I stick to our guns and keep to our knitting and continue to grow in grace day by day, we are not going to fall. And the idea is not, here is not sinless perfection. None of us are going to reach that this side of eternity. The idea that you will never stumble means that you're never going to go down for the count. You know, it's like uh, being in the boxing ring and a guy hits you and you hit the mat. There's a big difference, is there not, between the guy that jumps up immediately and the guy that stays down. In the Christian life, we see people that get hit by life, and life is going to hit you. It's going to land some good ones right on the tip of your chin, and you're going to go down. And you may participate in your own going down because of temptation, because of the lust of the flesh, whatever it may be. You go down because life hit you, so what do you do? You jump right back up. You get back up and you keep moving. Why? Because I'm not to the goal yet. So it will keep you from stumbling and it will also provide you that abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. So the first thing we see about our upward call is it's a calling with a promise. Not only is it a calling with a promise, but it's a calling in light of the brevity of life. You'll notice on your notes there, on page six, I've given you a list of the five crowns just for the sake of those who will be listening uh, into these classes and not have the notes. Uh, the crown of self-control in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. The crown of joy in Philippians 4, 1. That's what we call the witnessing crown. The crown of life, James 1, 2 and Revelation 2, 10, which is a crown for enduring testing and temptation. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8 is for those who love his appearing. In other words, they live in light of the fact Christ is coming back. Do you believe that Christ is coming back? Yes. Are you longing for his return? Yes. You know, we, we, it, it should make a difference in how I live today that I believe that he's coming back. So that is the crown of righteousness. It's available to each and every one of us. Paul talks of it in 2 Timothy 4, 8. And then, of course, the crown of glory, which is often called the pastor's crown in 1 Peter 5, 4, where the chief shepherd rewards the faithful under shepherds who have served him well in ministering to his people. So those are just a few of the ideas. And by the way, these crowns are only a smidgen of the eternal rewards that will be given. Jesus said, if you so much as give a child a cup of cold water because of your love for him, you will not lose your reward. How simple, how small, how seemingly insignificant, and yet how important to God. To meet a pressing need in a moment of time through some small little sacrifice of simply handing a cup of water. And everything from that level on up to sacrificing your life as many martyrs have done, everything will have its equivalent reward. And again, I stress 
The reward is not for our recognition. The reward is the ability to say to Christ, this is what your sacrifice meant to me. What you did on the cross mattered in my life. What you did on the cross changed my life. And this is my expression of gratitude. So in verses 12 through 15, we find that not only is it a calling with a promise, it's a calling in light of the brevity of life. Mike just mentioned that the fundamental Bible-believing church of America is a graying church, and that's true. Churches are not drawing young people because young people have been led astray. They've been lied to, they've been deceived, they have been led astray, they have been captivated and captured with all of the gadgets of modern life, with all of the distractions of modern life. They are literally too busy to be interested in the study of God's Word. So here we are. The question I want to ask you this morning, if you're one of those graying people of the growing older church, are you gonna be a great champion in your time? Are you going to be one of those people who will take a stand and raise your hand and say halt to the forces of evil and draw that circle around yourselves that says, this is where I stand and the evil comes no closer. Every single one of us can do that. And every single one of us have friends, every single one of us have family members, relatives, people around us, children, grandchildren, and we have no idea how that simple statement that's made by our life that this is where I stand. You know, Martin Luther, when he tacked up his 95 theses on the church door, he said, here I stand. This is where I stand. I can do no other. And to take that stand in your life and to have that impact in your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your relatives, as I said, you may change the life of people that you will never see. Be bold, take that stand. And you don't have to be arrogant about it. You don't have to be pushy about it. You can be very quiet in saying it, but you can simply say, this is where I stand. I will not compromise. Uh, I will not allow any pressure from society, from culture, from government, make me compromise my stand. This is where I stand. And we stand on this truth of Scripture. So it's a calling in light of the brevity of life. Notice 12, verse 12 and through 15. For this reason, Peter says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Just take a little note of that word remind. Though you know and are established in the present truth, you know there's nothing wrong with reminding people of what they know. Peter understood a fundamental principle, and that is teaching requires repetition. And teaching not only requires repetition, but it involves reminding people of something they already know. So he said, I know that you know this. I know you're established in it. I'm going to remind you anyway. Verse 13, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. So what he just told you is he's going to remind you. And then he reminded you that he's going to remind you. Right? Talk about repetition. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. 
Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things, even after my decease. So he told you he was going to remind you. He reminded you that he was going to remind you. And then he said, even after I'm dead, I'm going to keep reminding you. And that's why we're studying 2 Peter, right? The importance of repetition. But there are a couple of things that Peter mentions in this little section that are important. Notice that he refers to his body as a tent. You know, the great general, even though they're removing his statues, what a tragedy. Great Christian gentleman, Robert E. Lee, his last words when he died were strike the tent. And then he died. Stonewall Jackson had an equally interesting last statement. As he was dying, he was unconscious for a while and then he rallied and he sat up and he said, let us cross the river and rest in the shade of the trees. And he died. I don't know what my last words will be. Probably what in the world? <laughs> or, oh no. <laughs> I did what? Okay. Why is the mention of his tent important and then link it together with the word decease in verse 15. I want you to catch this. It's very important. It's one of those little links that's very subtle, but very important. Peter used these two words or heard these two words earlier. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll remember that Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah, and Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles here. Well, the word tabernacle is the same thing used here, same word. The idea is let's make three temporary shelters and let's just stay here. We'll make one for you, one for Moses, one Elijah, and we'll just stay here and we'll have a great party. And you know, it's so much like you and I when we're in one of those exhilarating moments of the Christian life and everything seems to be wonderful and our troubles all seem to have just drifted away and melted away and we're maybe with wonderful friends that we love to be with and it's just like, Lord, let us just build a tent and stay here. But you know what they had to do? They had to go back down the mountain and if you'll remember when they went back down to the mountain, down the mountain, what did they find? They had to confront demonic activity. God gives us mountaintop experiences, but they're only for a short time, and then we have to go down the mountain. And it's very interesting that he links tent now, that idea he had of wanting to stay in the glow of the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah with his decease. Because the word decease in the original language is exodus. Exodus, ek, hodos is the word. Hodos is the word for away. Ek means to go out. It means to go out in the way. And the idea is I'm making an exodus. Well, isn't it interesting that when Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, go back to Matthew 17 and you can read it. What were they talking to him about? They were talking to him about his decease. And what was his decease? The word is exodus. Those two words from that mountaintop experience are stuck in Peter's mind, but he's done something amazing. 
What he's done is he has now digested them into a mature understanding that now it is coming time for my decease and it's just as glorious a moment as it was on the mountain. I am not about to die. I am not about to end my life. I am not about to finish it all. I am about to enter into the permanent enjoyment of what I saw then as only a mere shadow. Death for Peter, even the death that Jesus told him about. You'll remember back in John 21 when Jesus said, when you were a young man, Peter, big, strapping, strong fisherman that you were, you went wherever you wanted. No one would stand in your way. You could pick them up and hurl them to the side. But what did he say? When you get older, when you become a great champion, others are going to take you. And they're going to take you where you don't want to go and they are going to stretch out your hands. And as tradition tells us, Peter died by crucifixion. And at his own request, he died crucified upside down because he said, I am not worthy to die in the manner of my Lord. A horrible, painful, agonizing, lingering death awaited Peter. And how did Peter look at it? Not with fear, not with trepidation. But with anticipation, I am soon going to lay aside this temporary tent and I am going to enter into the eternal temple of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I look forward to it with eager anticipation. Your life is brief. My life is brief. James tells us our life is a vapor that appears for a moment and then it's gone. Let's make it count. Especially those of us who are older, we have little time left. Let's make the time that we have left count. Peter challenges to do that. And then in verses 16 to 21, we find that it's not only a calling with promise and a calling in light of the brevity of life. It's also a calling that is confirmed by reliable witnesses. According to Jewish law, every truth had to be established by at least two or three witnesses. You'll read that in Deuteronomy 19.15. Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 13.1 and again in 1 Timothy 5.19. As you read through John chapter 5, particularly verses 31 to 39, you'll see that Jesus cites five witnesses to his identity. Here we have Peter telling us that what we have in the Word of God and the promises that it sets before us has been confirmed by reliable witnesses. We can trust the Word that we have because the witnesses who attest to it are people that are reliable. So first of all, we have the witness of Peter, James, and John. Verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, what's he referring to? He's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's saying, I was there. Me and James and John, we were there with him on the mountain. We saw him transfigured. We saw his glory. We saw Moses and Elijah standing there by the way, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, how do you see someone you've never seen before and you immediately identify him? Did you realize that that's what it's going to be like when you get into heaven? Say, how will I know Paul? You'll know him. You'll identify him. Nobody else could be Paul. 
You'll know David on the instant that you see him. You'll know who it is. It's not going to be this, you know, like we do before church because we sometimes don't know people. We walk up and introduce ourselves. Hi, my name's Gene. What's your name? And we don't know who they are. No, it's not going to be any of that. Not, hey, hey, my name's Gene. Who are you? Oh, well, I'm David. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have recognized you. No, you're going to know them. And Peter says, we were there, we saw it, and we testified of it to you. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So not only do Peter, James, and John testify to the truth of who Christ is and what he's done, but we have the testimony of God the Father Himself. Verse 18, We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And you might remember that the same words were spoken at the baptism of Jesus by John as He was baptized and He came up out of the water. You remember that the voice came from heaven saying the same thing. At the beginning and at the end of His ministry, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What greater testimony do you and I need than the testimony of the Father Himself? We have reliable witnesses. Why do we doubt? By the way, when He speaks about His excellent glory in verse 17, that phrase is a very interesting phrase. It means majesty that is so magnificent it beggars description. How do you describe something that majestic? How do you describe something that glorious? This is the idea. And so we have the witness of the Father. We also have the witness of many prophets. Look at verse 19 and 20. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now I want to stop with the word confirmed because it's important. And the reason it's important is because the same word is used earlier in the passage. You want to see? See the little line that runs from here to here? You say, what in the world is that? Well, that's my scribbling in my Bible. Because in verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. That word sure is the same word translated, confirmed in verse 19. Do you see why I get irate with translators? Why are they not consistent? The word confirmed is important. The word confirmed was used in legal documents. It means that this stands as absolute evidence. This is absolute proof that what we are claiming in the document is true. That would be especially true if you had a document and it was signed by the seal of the king. When the king puts his seal on that document, no one is going to question that document. God has put his seal to the truth of Jesus Christ. And what he's asking you and I to do through the things that we study, these steps of spiritual growth in verses 5 through 7, is to put a stamp of approval declaring that our salvation and our profession to the world is true. You know, if you speak like Paul, but you live like the devil, it's going to be very hard for people to believe you. 
The documents don't add up. The evidence doesn't add up. And sure, there are always going to be people who can find fault and flaws in our life. That's not the point. The point is that we never stop pressing on and we never stop looking. We just sang the song about standing on higher ground. Imagine this. Now let me put it this way. Where's my... Here we go. I've used this illustration all over the world. Matter of fact, it became something of a hallmark in Australia. The cross to the crown. I am here. Unbeliever. I probably should carry this so it records right. Here I am as an unbeliever. What is the call to me from God? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I trust in Jesus Christ. Now I'm here. Child of God, born again, born from above, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All my sins forgiven, the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. I've got it all, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. What's higher ground for me? Here. I start to walk the Christian walk. I begin to grow. I move from virtue to knowledge. I begin studying the word. At first, it's all a huge confusion. We don't understand hardly anything. And little by little, we begin to put those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that is the Christian life together. And we begin to see a picture emerging in our mind and in our soul. And it begins to make sense. And we start finding out, hey, this truth that's in Genesis links up with this truth in Revelation. This truth that I read in the Gospel of John links up with this truth in 2 Peter. And we start putting those pieces together and we start seeing that picture emerge. My wife loves jigsaw puzzles. I hate them. <laughs> they drive me crazy. But you know what? If you keep working at them, you get that last piece and you put that last piece in place. You know what happens when you put that last piece in place? That's when your time comes like Peter's time came when he put the last piece in place. That was when he went home. It's time to go home to the Father. It's time to enter our eternal home. So I'm standing here. Here I am a babe in Christ. Now I am a youth in Christ. John uses that very figure in 1 John 2.15. You young men, I write to you because you have overcome the evil one. That's great. Does that mean we stand there the rest of our lives? No, it's time to become an adult. This is what the Bible calls spiritual maturity. When we get to spiritual maturity, we're standing again. Wait a minute. We started walking. We were walking here. Now we're standing again. Why? Because now we're on battlefield ground. Spiritual maturity is time to take our stand. It's time to plant our feet. It's time to set up the perimeter. It's time to put on the full armor of God. And so we take our stand. Paul says in Ephesians 6, four times, he reminds us, stand, stand, stand. You almost get the impression he wants us to get a point. What is it? Stand. Right? Repetition. All right, so I've become mature. I'm standing. What's the next stage for me? Have I come as far as I can come? No, there's higher ground. Why? Because now we're moving on to higher ground where we're 
actually entering into what we would call hero status. Hero of the faith. We read about them in Hebrews chapter 11. Common men and women just like you and I. And what did they do? They did something unique in their life that no one else could do. Only Sarah in Hebrews 11, 11, could conceive the power to receive seed and to bear a child. Why? Because she judged him faithful who promised. No one else could do that. Only Sarah, a unique individual placed by God in a unique period of time and circumstances could make the decision that she had to make. You and I are in the same situations. No one else can play the part on the team that God wants you to play. You may feel small, insignificant, and unrecognized. Forget all of that. You are extremely important in the plan of God. Play the part He's given you to play and put on the full armor of God and take your stand in the battlefield of life. And then we move into the highest status of all. And now it's time to march right into the gates of the kingdom because we have become, as James tells us in James 2.23, a friend of God. A friend of God. What did Jesus say? You are my friends if you do what I command you. That doesn't happen immediately. We don't get that at the beginning of our spiritual life. So let's keep thinking in our mind and let that song remind us, God help me stand on higher ground. Why? Because as long as I'm alive, there's more for me to learn, more for me to apply, and more for me to understand. So coming back to our passage, verse 19 to 20, we have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ confirmed everything that the prophets told us would happen. The prophets said, this is the truth. Jesus came, his life lived out the truth. Can you see the application to you and I? Let's make our calling an election sure. Let's confirm it. Let's prove it to the whole world. Let's bring forth evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. Let's bring forth evidence in our life, in our thinking, our speech, our actions, our decisions. This is proof that what the Scripture teaches is true. So, he says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And he uses here a beautiful figure of the Lord returning for the church. One day Christ is coming back. He is the rising of the morning star. Those who wake up early enough, we may not all be in that category, see the morning star. And the morning star precedes the dawn. And as sure as you see the morning star, you know that the dawn is coming. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the bright and the morning star. So are we keeping our eye out for the morning star, which is going to precede the dawning of the day? Because that morning star is... I'm going to draw it for you next class. That morning star is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is going to come. What always comes between the morning star and the rising of the sun? Someone tell me. 
sun. What's that? The sun. Okay, but between the, the morning star and the rising of the sun, have you ever heard the saying, it's always darkest before the dawn? Yeah. Right? Do you know what the darkness before the dawn is? It's called the tribulation period. The stage of the world has been set for the tribulation. You and I are sitting right on the brink of the most awful time in human history. The nations of the world have never united together in unison and lockstep like they are now since the building of the Tower of Babel. We are living in a historic time. But it tells us something. The morning star is going to come soon. And one day the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and we who are alive and together are going to be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. I have the opportunity this coming Wednesday to speak on the Passover in our local church. And I'm going to use the Passover as a reminder that after the Passover comes the resurrection. And that points us to we use the word Easter. I really don't like it. I prefer Resurrection Sunday. And I've always looked at the possibility that since the head of the body was resurrected on Resurrection Sunday, <clears throat> maybe the body will be resurrected on the same day. I'm looking for the rapture next Sunday. You say, well, what happens if it doesn't come? Well, then I'm going to be looking for it on Pentecost. <laughs> And I'm going to be looking for it every day in between because keeping that in mind reminds me time is passing. Time is precious. We only have a little time. Let's use what we have. So we see then that the many prophets give us confirmation. And then finally, in verse 21, 20 and 21, we have the Holy Spirit. Notice that he says, knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The phrase private interpretation would be better translated private inspiration. We don't just decide that we're going to get inspired and write Scripture. It's something that happened when the Spirit of God came upon men chosen by God, prophets and apostles, to write and record the message that God had for you and I. And as those things were written down, it says that holy men of God, and again, holy, when it's used of men, never means sinless. I want you to understand that. We would be better instructed and, and more uh, in line with Scripture, if we would think of the term holy as whole and complete, if we would think of it in terms of healthy, spiritually healthy, spiritually whole, spiritually healthy men were moved by the Spirit of God to record for you and I the message that we have. So holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So once again, our calling in summary is a call to faith in Christ, verses 1 through 4. It is a call to growth in ministry in verses 5 through 9. And ultimately, it is a call for us to keep eternity always in mind. And that brings us to chapter 2. And why is that important? 
Well, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, chapter two is considered one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to interpret. And we're going to see as we enter into it why that is. <clears throat> there are some grammatical things. There are some cultural things. Uh, there are some preconceived ideas that we may have to shatter and get rid of. But we're going to look at chapter two as we now enter. We've been talking now for three sessions about spiritual growth. We've been laying a foundation for what purpose? Now it's time to enter into combat. If we're not making the moves to higher ground, we're, we're not ready to take on the enemy. We can't even handle ourselves. You know, it's very easy for young men to be full of you-know-what and vinegar and full of bravado and full of ideas of what they're going to do. And they go into the military and then what happens? They start getting broke down. They start finding out what they're not. They start finding out what they can't do. Now they're beginning to be prepared because they'll get broke down and tore down to get built back up so that now they can be a part of a team that is going to be effective in going into combat. And that's exactly what the Lord wants to do with us. And we're going to look at it as we enter into chapter two, which, as I said, in the English and from a philosophical from an interpretive point of view, very difficult passage. I think you're gonna enjoy it. I had a lot of fun untangling it and working it out. Uh, and I've been working on it for years. So who knows how much there is yet in the passage that I haven't even begun to grasp. We'll get into that next session. So Father, we are thankful for your grace. Once again, we wanna thank you for the marvelous ladies that have prepared food and refreshments for us. I want to thank you again for this church. I pray you'll put your hedge of protection around it. I pray, Father, that you'll wake people up in this neighborhood to realize that here is a church where they can come and hear the truth. And Father, let each one who's a member of this church also understand they have a responsibility to be recruiting other people, to draw them in, to bring them in, and to help them continue their spiritual journey of growing from the cross to the crown. To this end, Father, we commit all things into your hands, knowing that you alone can do it. Thank you for your grace, your power, and your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.